Well, good morning, Oak Church. How are you guys? Awesome. <laughs> hey, Tony. Well, it's always a gift to be with you all. Uh, I'm grateful that Chris keeps inviting me back. I make this joke that it's always nice to get the initial invitation, but when you get an invitation to come back, it means you're probably doing something right. So. Originally, I thought about talking about race because this is the weekend where we get to celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday. But why just limit our conversations to race to the second and third Sundays of January, right? Instead, what's really stirring in me is this passage in Isaiah 30. It's a passage that I've been struck by and stuck with for the last six months or so. It won't leave me, it makes me angry, it makes me cry. There's a little bit of grief and sadness. And currently, there's a little bit of joy in that. Sometimes when a preacher sits down to write a sermon, you get stuck with the ideas and the millions of sermons that you could write. But sometimes you have to go with what you know. This new year, it's a time for resolutions, it's time for new things, it's new hobbies, new goals. It's about uh, what it means to be a new you, right? All over social media, there's all of these proclamations about new year, new me, or new year, new you. We try to give up unhealthy things, things that are not life-giving, things that are harmful to us, habits that aren't helpful, in order to pick up better ones. We set our eyes on rewriting our stories and becoming a better us. And we do this in a world where things just seem to be getting more uh, interesting, right? What does it mean to want the newness of life, to crave and to desire something new, to long for a world that is made right, not only in us, but around us? One major truth I've learned along this journey is that God is the only one who can actually bring new life. That God is the one who restores life and makes something out of nothing. And as much as we want to create or make a new us every year, somewhere along the way, we tend to fail. Newness of life doesn't simply come on January 1st when you get your new moleskin planner or your passion planner and you write in it for a week and then it sits on the shelf for 357 days, right? That's, that's not the new year, new you, right? It happens when we grab hold of this story that says we have an utter dependence on a God who knows us, who loves us, and gave everything for us. It is a proclamation that our dependence is on God, the Emmanuel who is with us. It's a rewriting of our story that isn't just simply in a moment or an event, but it's this continual a declaration that our dependence is on the God of this universe. So as I've prayed for you and thought of you all over the last few weeks, I was just trying to figure out what could I possibly say to you, and I just couldn't shake this idea that maybe God might have something for us in Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30 is brutal, it is honest, it is convicting, it is the unveiling of our lives as it is, and an invitation to a life with God that is abundant. Not a life that is without pain or without suffering, but a life where we walk in step with a God who says, I am making all things new. I wish it was possible that we could will ourselves into newness with goals and resolutions to look at a seed 
right, and to make a forest overnight, to command our growth and our healing. But if there's something that I've come to know and something that I'm convinced about is that life is found in God and God alone. So maybe this year, new year, new you, is an invitation to a deep trust with God, an obedience that makes you leave the stories of your comfort and cling to the one who is with you. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into Isaiah 30. God, you are good, and your mercy endures always. Thank you that you are the God who is Emmanuel with us, that even when things are chaotic or things are just going awry around us, that, Lord, you sit right there in the middle of the story. So, Father, I pray that this morning that you would uh, sit with us in our stories, sit with us in the stories that we cling to, and that you would show us that you are with us creating new ways of being in this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Isaiah 30, 1 through 5. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to, Pharaoh, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be your shame. Egypt's shade will be your disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys have arrived in Hanes, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. So I wanted to start us off with a little fire and brimstone. You know, that's, that's a perfect way to start a Sunday morning. Uh, but I think that there's some hope in here for us this morning, right? So Israel, a little bit of context, Israel has this promise from God, an invitation to trust, to depend, to worship God. This is a God who delivered them out of the hands of slavery in Egypt and into what is an unknown but a promised future. The only known part of the future would be that God is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. So here they find themselves in the middle of a war with the Assyrians. Israel was being conquered, they were being plundered, their culture destroyed, their people were being enslaved and killed. The prophet Isaiah tells us that Israel was basically planning to go back to Egypt because of what they were facing. In this moment of fear, in this moment of anxiety and confusion, the people of Israel have this fond memory of Egypt. They talk about Egypt's shade, and they remember Pharaoh's protection. In their angst, Israel was choosing to trust in something that they knew, something that was predictable, a story that was so comfortable. But if you know Exodus, right? Let's remember Egypt. Egypt was a place that enslaved their foremothers and forefathers. Egypt was a place that killed their sons out of fear. Egypt was a place that fed them scraps, that made their lives bitter with hard labor. It was a place that oppressed them so that they would not know their own strength. They weren't wanting to choose God in this moment the one who had done the unimaginable but unpredictable in their lives, the one who had freed them from slavery, the one who had kept them in the wilderness so that their shoes and their clothes didn't wear away. 
the one who had fed them with this thing, manna. Instead, Israel wanted the predictable. They wanted Egypt. They wanted Pharaoh. I think we tend to fantasize about the things that were, right? What was, how things used to be, what was way back then. We have a fondness for our Egypts and our pharaohs, believing that Egypt will give us shade when actually Egypt was no shade at all, thinking that there's protection in our pharaohs when actually it's something that will lead to our death. There's something predictable and comforting about old places, old stories, old narratives that keep us running back to them. So what is your pharaoh? What is your Egypt? What is the thing that you're clinging to that gives you comfort when everything else is failing? Sometimes the only dreams that we can seem to dreams are the ones that we can manage to muster up in our old stories. Like Israel, when faced with a challenge, we take comfort in the predictable and in the familiar. There are the stories that we've come to believe and accept as our standard. Because it's the things that have been spoken over us, it's the things that we've experienced, it's the stories that we know the best. So when I was 12 or 13, I, I had a story that would become a pretty familiar story, a dependable story. It would be the narrative that I clung to through most of my adulthood. I grew, I grew up believing that I deserved every single bit of abuse and shame that was heaped on me, that I did not deserve good things, that my worth was something that was based in my accomplishments and what I did. I lived in a place of shame believing that life actually didn't matter, that it had no value, and that I was unlovable. Even when good things were happening around me, it was still this pretty comfortable thing that I could cling to and say, well, I can't really enjoy this because this isn't real. I felt like God was standing there wanting to pull the carpet from under me, but not just all the carpets, just the carpet for me. Right? It was these comfortable narratives that would shape my view of the world and shape my view of people for years to come. The story was a story that was deep, I believe that life was not worth living, that it was not worth it, and it's the thing that would shape my life. I believe these things because these are the stories that have played over and over and over again in my life. I don't usually remember the stories of joy and celebration, the good times, as much as I remember the stories of abuse, the stories of shame, the stories of poor uh, self-worth, right? So instead of remembering God, I would rather run to Egypt. I would run to those old stories, to what I know. But while narratives help us to make sense of this world and our lives and our experiences, they also make us really short-sighted to only focus on the thing that is right in front of us. Because like Israel, we run to what is comfortable. We naturally sink ourselves back into complacency and forget that there's new life, new stories, and new things that are happening around us every single day. For many of us, our new year, new us resolutions, they last as long as our commitments to start running, to read more, to stop reading our phones in bed, to do Whole30, right? I, I tried really, really hard this year to do Whole30. It lasted six days until I was confronted with old narratives of pizza and wine, right? <laughs> Our old stories, 
they give us something to cling to, some sense of normalcy, something that is comfortable for us. They give us the same broken results that we've been clinging to from the things that we've been running from. They weaken our imagination. They often lead us into more brokenness. These stories make us depend on what we can see and fathom and imagine and not what is unimaginable, not what God is doing in this world. So God has to remind Israel of this. Your old comforts, they will ultimately lead to your death. They will be there for just a moment. You will enjoy it for a few minutes, for a few weeks, for a few months, but ultimately you will die under it. Pharaoh's protection, it will be your shame. Egypt's shade, it will be your disgrace. The old story that you're clinging to, it will not work out for you. So Isaiah continues in verse 12, declaring the words of the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that it will that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among it, pieces, not even a fragment, will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This is what the sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five, you will all flee away. Till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Isaiah tells Israel something they've heard over and over and over again. When you trust in only what you know, when you take comfort in your past stories and past narratives, when you make that your home, it might be good for a while, but it will lead to your death. In God, there is freedom, there is stability, there is flourishing. And in our familiar stories that we run to instead of running to God, there, it leaves us with a comfort that ultimately will leave us broken. The comfortable narratives might pacify our fears, our despair, and our grief temporarily, but they will not actually help us flourish. They might decorate the pit and make it feel like home, but they will not rescue us from the pit. Instead of trust and obedience in God, Israel went to put their trust in an old story. They wanted to put their trust in Egypt and Pharaoh. And it's true. Egypt would protect them. But Egypt would also destroy their identity and their vision. And ultimately, it would destroy them. So you can trust in your old stories, but it will be your suffering. So what is your story? What is the thing in your life that you cling to? What is the familiar story or narrative that gives you comfort but doesn't bring you the kind of abundant life that God promises? In what story have you placed your trust and your future? 
So I want to tell you a little bit more about my story and what's kind of been stirring in me in the last six months. Uh, my mom passed away when I was about three, and my dad, for most of my life, uh, has lived his own story where he believes that God somehow killed my mother or took her life. He said, there can't be a God if God would let something like this happen. So he raised us to basically be skeptical of Christians. When we would drive by churches on Sunday, he would say, you're not like them. You're smart enough to know how to live your life without someone, a preacher, which is what I'm doing, a preacher telling you how to live your life, right? He lived in this deep hole of anger and distrust that he still pretty much lives in. It was an anger and distrust that he took out on us, both physically and emotionally. I grew up believing that somehow I was a mistake because of those experiences. That if there was a God, that God was cruel for putting me in a family like this. I wrestled with a deep depression that felt like a current so strong that it would keep me from escaping. By the time I got to college, uh, my context was still the same. My family was still pretty dysfunctional. Right? I was in a pit so deep that I basically decorated it, painted the walls, put up a table, and I, I was enjoying it. This was home. It was comfortable. I couldn't imagine another way out. And by the time I got to college, uh, I basically figured that, hey, maybe there aren't other options, right? Like, maybe if this doesn't get better, what's the point in living? What's the point of being here? So I remember praying probably around my first week of school that like, God, if you're real, you've got one shot, right? Like you either better show yourself or like, you know, I'll, I'll take matters into my own hands. And through the first probably month of school, like I think I've shared with you guys, a number of racial incidences were happening on campus. It did not feel like a place that could be home for a black student at a predominantly white campus. I was wrestling with that. I had a teacher who, um, who said, like, oh, black people can't write like that, therefore I'll give you a C on this paper. And I was like, what? Um, this place, UVA, that I thought would become a place of comfort, a place of home, it just, it didn't sit well with me. It was hard making friends. I had a lot of uh, acquaintances, but I didn't know where I fit in. So a number of students invited me to come sing in the gospel choir, and I was like, this, this is cool, I like to sing. I don't know what you're singing about, but I like being here and singing with you all. And I did that for about a month. And I remember having a really hard conversation with my dad where uh, he basically cussed me out. He said, you're never going to be anything in life. And I was like, okay, I, I think he's right. So I was walking around campus, um, I was walking around campus one day and decided, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to going to go clean my room, going to go say goodbye to my favorite places on campus, and I'm going to take my life. And I was walking on campus, and uh, one of the fourth-year students who was singing in the gospel choir, she was present at the time, she opened her door as I was kind of walking down the lawn, and she invited me to come in. And I was like, uh, no, I've, I've got something to do. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Like, I'll, I'll see you later. And she's like, no, I really, I was just praying. And the Lord said to invite whoever was on the other side of that door inside. And I just started weeping. And we sat there. She prayed for me. I, I told her all the things. Campus police got involved. You know, like, 
people who know their boundaries and know what they can handle, they got a counselor, that's good, like, get help. Um, but it was in that moment that I realized as she was kind of preaching the gospel to me that, that God has a new story for us. That the thing that we've placed our comfort in, the place that we want to reside, that God is doing a new thing. I stumbled upon the kindness and compassion of people who just kept showing me love and kept showing up when things were hard, saying, this is not the only way, right? There is a new way, and God has never left you or forsaken you, that God is with you now and always and has always been with you. There was this moment a couple weeks later where um, we were singing in the gospel choir as the week of our concert, and typically those weeks are super stressful. We would come together, we would worship, and we were singing this one particular song called Manifest. And the words, well, I don't, I can't remember the words, but the part that was significant to me uh, was this idea that um, people are pregnant with possibility, that God has placed something in each one of us, right? And that those things are being birthed, and so to, to be called to something that is bigger than ourselves. And as we were singing that, I started weeping, and I heard very clearly from the Lord. I saw this image, and it was the chains are broken. And I remember crying because I felt like there was this story and narrative that had uh, pulled so heavily on my life that I felt like I couldn't get free from. And then all of a sudden, to hear these words that the chains are broken, to make possible this new reality, I was just weeping, and all of these friends around me were praying for me. Right? God used people and this space to bring me into a new possible story. It's this kind of kindness and compassion that led me to start following Jesus. To believe that a new story could be, despite what I had believed and what I had seen and what I had experienced, that it could be something different. It's the moment that I realized that whatever I was doing, where I was, that I couldn't get myself, I couldn't will myself, I couldn't uh, take myself into something better, right? That God was the only one who could put me on a firm ground and firm foundation. I felt like I'd tried everything, and perhaps what I really needed was an utter dependence on God. I came to faith in college. I was the chapter president for our ministry. I went to seminary. I've worked at churches. I've been walking with God, and still, every time something happens, my temptation, even after everything I've seen, is to go back to those old stories, right? That nobody really loves you or cares about you, that you have to work or to do something to be loved, that I was the only one who could possibly take care of me, that I needed to be extraordinary to have value, that I don't deserve to live. I was serving God and distracted by the thing that was ahead of me. What I really wanted to do, what I really want to do in those moments is to put my trust in Pharaoh and in Egypt. The only way forward I can imagine in those moments of uncertainty and through the lens of my past and my experiences is the familiar. I know that story. I know that darkness. And yet deep down inside, if this is the only story, if this darkness is the norm, then there is no hope. So 
because I started reading Isaiah 30 last fall at a retreat, and I always stopped at verse 17, usually angry, like take, like close my Bible, like what is this about? Like I don't understand, right? And in October, I decided to talk to my spiritual director about this passage because it just wouldn't leave me. It just kept making me more angry. And I said, Sally, I, I, I just don't get it. I don't get this. I'm really angry at this passage. I actually don't blame Israel, right? Like, uh, with the info that they had in front of them, I'm a data-driven person, with the info that they had in front of them, it makes sense why they would pursue other options, right? And she didn't say anything as a good spiritual director would do. We sat there in awkward silence, and I kept looking at her like, what are you thinking? Like, what, what's happening? And then finally, she offered this gentle nudge. She said, did you read the rest of the passage? <laughs> of course not. It's too long. <laughs> Plus, I got mad, and I decided to stop reading because I'm frustrated. She said, well, I'll read it to you since you don't want to. So I'm going to read it to y'all. Uh, Isaiah 30, this is uh, verse 18 and on. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He's gathering strength to show you mercy, to show mercy and compassion to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself from you anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, this is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will desecrate your expensive idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, be gone. As she was reading this, I'm like weeping. <laughs> and she said, I just want to point out to you that another translation reads, the Lord stands on his tiptoes waiting to show you mercy and compassion. She said, why are you so afraid to let go of what you know? Why are you clinging to Egypt and to Pharaoh? Those old stories, they were valuable to you. They helped you survive. They kept you alive. But you don't need them anymore. They've become your expensive idols. God wants to give you a new story. One that you might not be able to see clearly or very far down the road, but one thing is for sure. One thing we know, one thing we continue to see over and over and over again is that God is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And with that, I was relieved and filled with grief and sadness and anger at the same time, like, I don't care but also realizing that this is a God who shows compassion, that I had made idols out of old stories, that I wanted to run to the things that were predictable instead of an unpredictable God. So friends, I, I think that there's an invitation in this for us. 
It's an invitation to turn away from our expensive idols and narratives of comfort, the things that we have placed our trust in, and to turn towards God. What is your Egypt? What is your Pharaoh? What are the, what are the things that those stories are promising you? Often, we're really good at turning away from the things that are clearly hurting us, that are clearly sin, that are clearly causing us pain. But it's a lot harder to turn away from the things that are comfortable for us, right? Even if they are bad for us. Our old stories, our old pharaohs, our old Egypts, they might not be causing us clear pain. But like Israel, Egypt and Pharaoh won't give us what it promises us. Instead, it puts us back into a place of slavery, and it normalizes the brokenness that we've learned to deal with it. That is not life, and that is not God. God's story colliding with our story is the only story that can bring us something different. There is a grace, a compassion, and a mercy that restores and sets us on solid ground. John 10.10 says, the evil one comes to kill, to steal, and to to destroy. But I, Jesus, have come so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The comfortable narratives, I think, are a ploy from the enemy to keep us from experiencing the fullness of God. The enemy would want you to believe that the only thing possible is what you can dream or imagine or fathom or see right in front of you. The comfortable stories that you believe for you and your families, God wants to do something different. The passage says that because of the grace and the mercy and the compassion shown to you by God, that you'll go find your expensive and your valuable idols and you will desecrate them, that you will destroy them, that you will take them and break them until there is nothing left. I imagine walking into an an idol factory, right, the idol factory of our hearts, and taking all the fine china, the expensive jewelry, the expensive art, and destroying it, saying this has no value to me. The passage says you'll throw down those idols and you'll say no more, good riddance, and you'll leave it behind. You'll destroy the stories, the things, the beliefs that have caused you to turn away from God and to place your hope in something else. You'll say no to the lies. You'll cast down the pride, the significance, the relationships that you place your trust in, the sin that you run to, the identity that you've tried to create for yourself, the performance that you're putting on for everyone else around you. You'll take that and you'll say no more. And I admit, some days, this is a practice that I have to do multiple times a day, right? Like, 15 minutes, you're like, no more, good riddance. And then you're like, ooh, but oh, no more, good. Like, it's, it's just continual practice of saying, no, instead of turning to those idols, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. God longs to show you mercy and compassion, the kind that surprises you, the kind that makes you stop dead in your tracks and lay down the old stories that have provided you with warmth and comfort. And this is the kind of compassion and mercy that changes the trajectory of lives, right? It pulls us out of depression, out of shame, out of loneliness. It heals brokenness and abuse. 
it tells us that our value does not come from external things, that our value comes from being sons and daughters of God. It tells us that the work before us, that our work might feel impossible and overwhelming and stressful, that our futures might seem uncertain, that our grades for the students in here might seem terrible, but that God is a God who uses the least of these. It tells us that our families might be overcome by generational curses, by disease, by depression, by cycles of abuse, but that God can break those cycles and bring healing. It is a God who gave everything for us so we wouldn't have to live in the bondage to Egypt and to Pharaoh. When you cling to God's story and you trust in God despite the unpredictability and fear you might have, God will revive you, that God brings life, that God stirs in you, in your family, and in your community the kind of life that overflows. The life that God brings takes dead things and raises them back up to life. It's been this kindness and compassion to me that has called me to turn away from the stories that have given me comfort over the years. It's been God's compassion to me that has caused me to say yes to the unimaginable and the unpredictable ways that God likes to function in this world and in our lives. My New Year's resolution this year wasn't about like setting a new plan, using a planner, like sure, I'd like to get more exercise, I'd like to eat better, I want to stop using my phone before bed, but this year, my New Year's resolution is to have this growing dependence on God, the Emmanuel, who is with us. And it's this God who stands on his tiptoes, waiting to show mercy and compassion to us when we turn from those narratives that have become so comfortable to us. So it might be a new year, new you, but don't forget, it's the same God, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Ruth and Rahab and Mary, who stands there waiting to just change your story, to give you something new to believe in, to put hope in a story that feels hopeless, and to bring light into darkness. This is the God who stands on his tiptoes waiting to show you compassion and mercy. The kind of compassion that will make you look at your stories, look at your idols, and to look at those narratives and to say, no more good riddance. I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you are the God, the Emmanuel, who is with us. That, God, you are the one who sits in the middle of our brokenness. That you are the one who walks with us in the desert. That you are the one, even in the midst of watching us treasure our idols and our old stories, says, I desire to show compassion and mercy to you. So God, I, we pray that in quietness and rest, we will find our salvation. That we wouldn't try to build this thing, this place of comfort, that we would have this utter dependence on you and you alone. So God, even as we sit here this morning and think about confession and coming to your table, that we would be able to lay it all before you, Lord. That we would put down those stories and that we would receive the story that you have for us. And that is a story of life and flourishing. In Jesus' name I pray.